welcome to Nesta for this twilight, might have been a sunset event a few weeks ago, but now it's a sort of twilight uh, event to talk about growing humans. Uh, my name's Jeff Mulgan, I'm chief executive here at Nesta, and we'll be in conversation with Philip, but also hopefully all of you will also be uh, in conversation with Philip. Um, I assume that many of you are here because you have read his books, or at least some of his books. I won't do a show of hands. How many of you read? How many of them? Uh, but he is, I think, pretty unique as a as, as a writer in terms of the range of topics you've covered, uh, right across the board from structures and physics to music and uh, this sort of stuff. But also uh, the clarity uh, with which he uh, handles very complex issues. And someone said to me. Uh, one of the great virtues of Philip Ball is he makes you feel quite clever after reading his books. Uh, you may even be cleverer than you were before you read them, but at least you, you feel uh, so. And this book, um, How to Grow a Human, actually covers a very wide range of, uh, it's actually very informative on a lot of issues about um, biology and genetics, which Philip will share, but also ranges into science fiction, utopia, dystopia, our squeamishness, there's a bit about sex you may talk about, I have no idea. Um, and, uh, and, and if nothing else, is very thought-provoking. So Philip will talk for 15, 20, 25 minutes about some of the themes of the book. We'll then have a bit of a conversation, but then do please um, uh, engage. Uh, difficult questions, troubling things. If you've read the book, you can uh, comment on what you thought was wrong on page 173, if you like. Oh, wow. uh, we'll see where we get to. Anyway, Philip, over to you. Thanks, Jeff. Um, I was imagining I might have a screen here, and I, and I don't, but uh, I did want to show you these. And I think in a place <laughs> in this size, um, you, you, you'll, you'll get the gist of it. Um, these things here, because they're rather lovely. Okay, and these are neurons. So if you've never seen neurons before, they look rather nice. Um, however, these aren't just any old neurons. These are my neurons. But you've coloured them. Um, they are coloured. I, I, they, they're not, um, in a sense, artificially coloured. They have uh, molecules absorbed in them that are stains, fluorescent stains, right. so that they glow yeah. in the microscope. Yeah. And the different colours, in fact, show different types of cell. Um, so, you know, different molecules go to different cell types. So the green strands are the neurons. Um, and as I say, they're mine. Um, and you might wonder how I'm sitting here in that case talking to you if this is a bit of my brain under the microscope. Well, it's, it's not actually a bit of my brain, or rather it's a, sort of a bit of my second brain, because this, uh, these neurons were made uh, from a piece of my arm about two years ago. Um, I had a little thing, uh, a bit of skin extracted and turned into these. Um, and then I'll show you what they then became. Um, that um, was the start of my journey into what I think is one of the most extraordinary developments in certainly in the life sciences, maybe across the board in, the, in, in recent years. And it's one that um, could actually transform my lifetime, could prolong my lifetime, or if, at least if not mine, then certainly of some of you here, younger than me. Because in a nutshell, what this uh, discovery boiled down to is that our cells, our, our flesh, our tissues, are much more versatile and plastic, if you like, than we thought they were. And to take the, 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 that notion to its ultimate conclusion, what this discovery is really telling us is that probably every fragment of your and my flesh holds within it the potential to become an, an, another entire organism, another person. And whether or not that's another you or not, maybe it's something we'll, we'll talk about. Um, and to seriously embrace the idea, uh, that idea, I think means to recognize some challenges to our notions of what we mean by the self, what we think of as personal identity. The American cultural theorist Susan Merrill Squire has talked about it, replotting the human. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what that replotting might entail. And I want to start with the um, 
the embryo from which we all grew, an embryo from which we all grew. And I've, I've got another picture here. It's big enough to see. Um, this is uh, an embryo at the stage called a blastocyst, uh, which is about five days after um, uh, fertilization. And the bit that is uh, that the arrow is pointing to here, there's just a, it's a so it's this round structure. It's not a single cell. This is made up of many cells. But this cluster of cells on the side here. This is what will become the person. This is called the inner cell mass. The rest of it is the housing. And what happens here, this is a cluster of cells, and they will develop into all the tissue types of the body, into muscle and skin and nerves and blood and so on. And they are called embryonic stem cells. So they have the potential, it's called pluripotency, the potential to become all of these other tissue types in the body. And um, as they develop towards those specialized tasks, that process is called differentiation. And as, as it happens, as the, as the embryo grows, the, 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 the tissues themselves continue to grow and they start to also to fold up and do various things that start to eventually take on a shape that looks like that sort of shrimp-like fetus that we recognize as the beginnings of a human being. So that's what happens um, during development. But the curious thing is that what distinguishes those different cell types, a skin cell from a neuron, say, isn't the genes that it contains, because every time a cell divides, all of the genes, the whole genome, is copied in the daughter cells. So what distinguishes those cells is how those genes are used. Um, and specifically, some of them will be switched on and some of them will be switched off. And by that, I mean that if, the, if a gene is active, then it is making the, the protein that it encodes. And it's the proteins that conduct the biochemistry in, in, in our cells. So this process of dif cell differentiation for a cell to acquire, or I should say a cell line, because there's a series of cells you know, uh, replicating, to acquire a certain fate, to become a certain tissue. Um, this involves processes of switching on and off genes. And this is um, what's referred to as epigenetics, which just really means something beyond the genes themselves that is controlling them. Um, and how that process happens is still not fully understood. We do understand a lot about how um, genes are switched on and off. But one thing that's crucial and that sometimes isn't emphasized enough is that it happens by dialogue between the cells. Um, it's not something that's programmed into a particular cell from the outset, because otherwise, how would it know what fate to acquire? It's something that happens as the embryo mass grows. The cells speak to each other. They send each other signals that tell one another what bit of the body they're supposed to become. And that's how they know what to do. Um, now, for a long time, it was thought that this process of cell differentiation is one way that once a cell has started down the road to a particular fate, there's no going back. Um, that was the prevailing view until just 12 years ago, when a Japanese scientist named Shinya Yamanaka found uh, that he could convert fully differentiated human cells, like my skin cells, for example, back into a, a state like those stem cells, those embryonic stem cells, where they could then become any tissue type. And um, th th those converted cells are known as induced pluripotent stem cells. Um, so they're kind of artificial stem cells, if you like, made from mature cells. Um, and it turned out to be surprisingly easy to do this. The way it works is that Yamanaka and his colleagues um, injected using viruses um, that are very good at injecting genes into, into cells. That's how a lot of them work. Um, they, they use viruses to inject um, just a cocktail of, of, in fact, it turned out that just four genes were enough to convert uh, these mature differentiated cells into this stem cell-like state, into induced pluripotent stem cells. And um, the, the, so there are all sorts of um, medical implications of this, because once you have stem cells, then you can grow them into other tissue types. And I'll talk about that in just a second. But the real breakthrough was a conceptual one, that it showed that you can actually reprogram cells this way, switch their fates. Um, so in principle, you can, you, you, you can reprogram cells to become a stem cells and then 
induce them in other ways, perhaps by injecting other genes um, or by other means, you can induce them to become particular tissue types. So you can make them become liver cells or kidney cells, and then you can culture them to go on growing into a mass of kidney cells or into a mass of neurons, of brain cells. Now, um, uh, the... Uh, the, 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 the interesting thing about this is that, um, is that you can, um, you can what, once they start to do that, they don't just grow into a sort of random mass of these different tissue types. The cells know how to start making those particular organs. They start to organize themselves. And this is um, what happened when my skin cells were turned into neurons. They just be be began as neurons in a dish, but as they grew, as the colony of neurons grew, um, it started to organize itself into something looking like a brain. Um, and these things are called brain organoids. And I've got, I wanted also to show you a picture of one of them. This is a, this is a brain organoid. I hope you can get some sense from that. But this isn't just a mass of cells. There's a lot of structure in there. You can see the kind of layering that you get in the cortex, for example. So they really do start to look like little brains. This one isn't mine. Mine wasn't quite as, as lovely as that one. But this is actually mine. This is uh, my mini brain. And you can see there's a lot of structure in that. Okay, and again, they're, they're different colors. The green cells are neurons. The blue ones are other types of cells that the, the real brain has. So the cells have this knowledge of how to organize themselves. Now, I should explain what, why on earth this was done, um, just briefly, because it was part of a, a, a big project that the Wellcome uh, Trust was, was funding from 2016 to 2018 called Created Out of Mind, which was basically a project about dementia. It was, um, the aim was to uh, challenge public perceptions of, of dementia and to make people more informed about dementia and also to think about how people living with dementia are cared for and how the creative arts in particular can be useful for that. Um, and this was a, just a very small part of this very big project um, where we figured it might be interesting to get researchers at UCL, uh, in the neurology department, who are growing these mini brains to, to do this to me, to find out what it, what it felt like. Um, now, they, they grow mini brains. Um, the, the leader of that group is Selena Ray, and they uh, are, are growing mini brains from people who have a genetic predisposition to early onset Alzheimer's. So that was the link to, to dementia. And they hope that by growing mini brains uh, from people who have this condition, they can try to work out what is going wrong genetically um, that gives them this, pr this propensity to uh, early onset Alzheimer's. Um, now, in principle, as I say, it's possible to grow, any, to grow all sorts of organs. So as well as brain organoids, people have grown pancreatic organoids or you know, mini livers or mini kidneys or mini guts. And the, uh, the, the, the exciting thing about this is that you can imagine using them for organ transplants. Um, so you could you could take a patient's um, t you know skin cells like mine, grow them into a liver, and transplant it back. And if you do that, then you don't have any of the problems of immune rejection that usually accompanies th those sorts of transplants. Um, now, one of the problems is that you can't grow a full-sized liver. You couldn't grow my mini brain was about the size of a of a, um, a, a dried pea. It couldn't get any bigger than that because once it does the cells in the interior don't, uh, they, they die because they don't have a blood supply. So they don't have any of the nutrients and the oxygen that they need. Um, so one of the challenges is to, to if you want to make bigger organs, um, is to find ways of giving it a blood supply. And people are working on that. And you can deliver signals to these organoids that might encourage the growth of vasculature, of, of, of basically blood vessels um, in, in the dish. But another possible solution is to um, grow them not in a dish in vitro, but to grow them in other organisms. And this has been done already. So for example, one group in, in Japan has grown in a dish um, little buds of liver, human liver tissue um, and then transferred them while they were still little. They've grafted them onto mice. And once they're grafted, the, those cells get the signals from the mice cells to grow blood vessels. And so some of the human 
uh, cells within that mass, instead of becoming liver cells, they start to develop into, um, uh, uh, into the, the cells of uh, blood vessels, of, of blood vessel uh, wall linings. And so what you end up with is a tiny little organoid that is uh, a human kind of mini liver with human blood vessels being supplied by mouse blood. Um, now, again, of course, you're not going to get a human-sized liver growing on a mouse. But how about if you do it on a human-sized organism, like a pig or a cow? And that's something that's been uh, now researched to see whether this is possible. And uh, very recently, some researchers in California showed that it, uh, at least um, it seems to be possible in principle in that if you put human stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells into a pig embryo at the blastocyst stage, then they will survive when that blastocyst grows into a pig. There will be human cells in there. And in order to get them to grow into a particular organ, what you can do is to engineer the pig uh, uh, embry embryo so that it lacks the capacity to grow, let's say, a kidney. Um, and then when it comes to the stage in development where a, you know, a kidney would normally develop, the only cells in that mass that can become a kidney are the human ones. And so they will become a, ki a human kidney growing in a pig. And then the idea is that it grows to full size. And, you know, sorry to put it this bluntly, but when it comes time to make your pork and bacon, and that's the reality of that's, you know, these are livestock animals, you also get a, a human kidney as well um, that could be used for transplant. So this is the idea. It hasn't been done yet, but it's the idea. Now, I suspect I won't be alone in finding that both exciting and amazing and a little bit unsettling. And there are real, clearly strong ethical questions here to be asked. Um, technically, animals like this that have a mixture of cells of, um, of different types um, in them, of different uh, genomes in them, are called chimeras. But of course, a chimera is a mythical monster. And you know, it, there it does seem to be, there feels to be something quite monstrous about this idea. And I don't want to sound alarmist about this, and I, uh, or, 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 or you know, um, uh, to, to, to sort of be raising unnecessary alarms, but I have heard that, um, I have heard people working in this area quite seriously say, there is no reason in principle, there's no reason in practice why anyone would want to do this, but in principle, there is no reason to believe that you could not grow not a liver, but a human brain inside a pig. Um, so, you know, th this is what I mean when I say that these technologies seriously lead us to, to, to question not just the ethics of, 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 of this sort of work, but of exactly what it means to be a human. And I've, I, I'm, I'll leave it there, and, um, and we'll, we'll see where we go from that. But I hope that gives you a, uh, some indication of why I grew a mini brain. <laughs> right, okay. Right. <coughs> Thank you. Well, well let, let's maybe sort of start there and, um, and probe how far you think we should think this regenerative medicine could go. So you've suggested it will be possible to grow... Uh, not just replacements of human brain, you know, skin if you have a, burn, a problem with burns or uh, your liver starts failing. Uh, the project started with dementia and so um, uh, uh, brain cells. And in principle, any part of any of you can be regrown, rebuilt and improved uh, starting with any cell any, in, in your body. Uh, now, one thing you, you don't actually talk much about in the book is aging, even though it starts with dementia. Uh, and how, how much do any of these regenerative tools um, help, uh, um, well, stop uh, aging? Can you basically grow your younger liver, or does the liver you grow end up being the same age as you? Is, right. this, the, is this the key to eternal life? Yeah, it, well, one of the big questions about making these induced pluripotent stem cells is how good the reprogramming is, mm. whether those cells still have some memory of you know, having become skin cells. Um, because to really get them back to the state they were like in an embryo, um, so then they would, if you like, be, be young cells, um, you need to clear away all the epigenetic programming that has mm. turned them into skin cells. And it's not clear how much of that 
really happens. It, it's not clear either how much of it necessarily matters. If they're stem cell enough, you know, mm -hmm. stem cell-like enough, mm -hmm. then it may not matter, but it may do. And this is one of the issues, that it may do in the sense that those cells might be like sort of prematurely aged mm -hmm. stem cells. Um, and we don't know, mm -hmm. to be honest. We, we, we just don't know, you know, how much of a problem that might be. Um, so, but, um, you know, ne nevertheless, I mean, if we're talking about, um, I mean, we're not talking about yet about immortality, but if we're talking about um, someone towards the end of their life, um, you know, coping with a, a kidney that's starting mm. to fail, um, then, you know, that may not matter if you're able to grow some uh, an organ that is going to last for 10 more yeah. years. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, I think one of the, the, the one of the most enticing, exciting and important prospects is about dementia. Um, because things like Alzheimer's are going to, I mean, the, you know, they're becoming increasingly important because we're living longer. Um, and th there are certainly ideas that stem cells might redress these neurodegenerative diseases that are really one of the biggest and certainly one of the scariest challenges of aging that we face. Um, now, you know, that's a huge challenge. I mean, for one thing, it's not clear that you can grow a mini brain, you know, a bit of brain tissue. And because the, the thing that happens with Alzheimer's and with some other neurodegenerative conditions is that the neurons just die and you just have these voids in the brain. The brain becomes, you know, like a sort of sponge. Um, you can't just grow a bit of tissue and kind of graft it back in. Um, it has to be wired in to the rest of the brain, let alone the challenges of actually doing the, the surgery. Um, but there's some hope that you can, rather than do that, you can do it directly. You can inject the stem cells or induced stem cells directly into the brain and the surrounding tissue will give those cells the right messages for them to become brains that then wire up, you know, intrinsically, mm -hmm. sort of in situ. Or um, there's a possibility that instead of having to do it with stem cells, because the problem with stem cells is that they... They, they can become any tissue type, but they also have a tendency to get out of hand and become tumors. Mm. And the worry is if you're putting them directly into the body that you could induce tumors. But some people are looking into the possibility of doing direct reprogramming from one type of differentiated cell to another um, without going via stem cells that could become tumors. And so there are, there are various tissue uh, cell types in our brain um, not just neurons. In particular, there are uh, cells called glia, which have all sorts of functions. They don't actually, they're not nerves, they, they don't carry nerve signals, but they have all sorts of functions in the brain. However, it seems possible that we might be able to repurpose some of the glia there to turn them into neurons that have been destroyed by neurodegenerative diseases, by this direct reprogramming that will involve, you know, feeding in a particular kind of um, drug agent. It could be um, just the genes that are needed for that reprogramming. Um, and, you know, then regrow uh, brain tissue that way. So there are various mm -hmm. possibilities that will, I think, uh, you know, are very likely in one way or another to at least uh, address some of the challenges of aging, particularly to do with just stuff going wrong um, yeah. with, with organs, you know, malfunctioning. And uh, just as <coughs> a reality check, uh, are any of those regenerative uh, sort of brain um, treatments part of medical practice, or are they all in the lab still? They're, some of them are in clinical trials. Right. Um, yeah. So they're really just sort of making the, 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 the transition. In particular, yeah. I mean, th there have been a few trials with this um, injection of stem cells into right. the brains of people who <coughs> are so, uh, you know, ha have quite an, uh, an advanced uh, neurodegenerative condition for which yeah. there is no cure at the moment. Yeah. So, you know, that's why yeah. it's, it's, it's worth doing. That, but there are also trials um, <coughs> underway for macular degeneration. I mean, that's another big problem with aging, okay, is loss of sight. And um, so there are some trials using stem cells um, that can regenerate the retina um, uh, in, the, in the eye. And that some of those, they're happening in Japan. Japan is still way ahead, partly because it's you know, it has a, a regulatory oh. regime that uh, allows this to happen. Um, uh, that there are trials there um, that you know have ha have shown yeah. some some sign of success. I should also say that Japan has a real problem, and I think it, it's not just Japan by any means. It's spreading, um, you know, everywhere now, with 
clinics promising all kinds of miracle cures from stem cells some of which most of which will be totally useless and some of which will be dangerous mm. so this is an area that really needs tight regulation so later we might come on to some of the ethical questions of whether your second brain or body parts have any any rights of any kind like you do uh, and also whether all these pigs and cows who'll be out there sort of growing on your organs you know have any uh uh, well, whether, what the ethical obligations we have to them. But I wanted to go right to the other end of the spectrum of issues to um, the question of brains in vats. So the matrix, I suspect many of you have seen the matrix, uh, which you do discuss a little bit. Uh, and, and of course, any thought about growing brains makes comes up this image of brains sitting in sort of vats of liquid uh, and then not really knowing what reality they're in or what, mem what, what their memories are. Could you say a little about the philo philosophical issues as well as the practical issues of a future of uh, thousands of brains sitting in vats in yeah. maybe buildings like this? Yeah, well, you know, I was really intrigued to discover when I started looking into this that philosophers have been toying with this idea of brain, uh, the brain in a vat for, for a long, long time as a, as a excuse me, thought experiment. Mm -hmm. Because you know the question is, can such a thing, if it is functioning, um, ca can it have any kind of consciousness? Can it develop any awareness of itself if it has no obvious interface with its environment? What, what is going on in there? Um, and um, it's you know it, it, it seemed to be you know very much a sort of philosophical problem for thinking about issues of consciousness um, but now it really is becoming a very real one and uh, the these mini brains are people who are working on these mini brains are really starting to recognize that we have to ask that question at some point there will come a time when we have to think and it may already be here where we have to think you know what what is going on in there um, and there, there were, was a recent report of uh, a study of many brains. We know that the, the, the neurons are active. They're signaling to each other, just like they do in, in, in our brains. Um, but, you know, we, it, it, it's easy to imagine that, that, well, that's just sort of random noise. That's just what neurons do. But actually, there was a recent report that, that showed that there, were, that there was more kind of structured electrical activity in some many brains that resembles things like sort of brain waves um, that, that you can see in, in ECG scans of our brains. So it's not at all to say that there's anything like thinking, let alone consciousness there. But there are people, um, uh, Christoph Koch, a neuroscientist, a prominent neuroscientist um, in uh, Seattle, has a, a theory of consciousness that um, posits, I think, quite reasonably, that it's a question of degree. It's not something that suddenly appears, you know, above a certain threshold, and that we can reasonably think that many brains, because they have the same kind of wiring structure that our brains do, have a degree of consciousness. What that means isn't clear. It's certainly not clear what it can be. I mean, I went to a conference about the, the ethics of, of many brains, and there was a big discussion about pain. Um, because people were sort of saying, you know, can a, a mini brain feel pain? Because it, the brain has no pain receptors in it. So that if you're, in a sense, there's nothing to feel pain. It's where we feel pain, but only because of the signals we're getting from our pain receptors. But people were saying, well, can, but could a mini brain feel existential pain in some way? <laughs> and, you know, we don't know. Um, you know, we, 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 uh, so I, I think already these are questions that are having to be asked. And your, your brain was killed. My, it was, yeah, yeah, it was, and uh, you know, at the time, it was before I spoke to Christoph about this, and I kind of felt, well, you know, it's fine. It's it. It was a, it was very interesting to see this happen, it, but it was a piece of tissue. You know, there wasn't anything really going on in there. And after I spoke to him, I kind of I didn't feel guilty. I don't think, but I did feel well. You know, it's yeah. it's not as necessarily as clear cut as that. And some people, uh, some bioethicists, thinking about these issues, are saying we may come to a stage where many brains are sophisticated enough, maybe big enough, that we have to appoint a guardian to them in the same way, in mm. the same sort of sense as you would mm. you know, appoint a guardian for a child in care mm. to look after its, mm. it, to be its advocate. Yeah. Um, so these are certainly questions that are having to be confronted. Uh, what if you had sort of implanted a more advanced version of your mini brain into your dog, let's say, so it, it gains various human reasoning capabilities? 
the, uh, what, what happens then, both practically and ethically? There, there have been experiments on rats where um, human uh, stem cells have been mm. incorporated into them in, in, the, in their mm. brains, mm. and um, they uh, show better capabilities at navigating certain tasks and you have to be really careful about how you say that you know that it, it, it's not clear that you can say well the, they look smarter mm -hmm. and it's certainly not clear that you can say oh they're smarter because they've got some human neurons in them but there's something different ab mm -hmm. about them so already you know this is something that, that, that that's being um, being done mm -hmm. um, and again we don't know what the consequences of you know mm -hmm. a, a hybrid like that w would mm -hmm. be um, I mean another thing that's talked about um, not very much but it's certainly talked about by the, I spoke, spoke in the summer to George Church at Harvard who's one of the key people in this area and he was saying well one reason to grow these mini brains is you know why do we make computers he imagines using them as a kind of computer just finding ways and we have ways of interfacing the neurons with silicon technology mm -hmm. And perhaps making information processing devices that, as we know is true of human brains, mm. can do things that our digital computers mm. can't do. Um, and again, you know, there's the, you can imagine ethical questions there that we're enslaving these brains to do our computations. Yeah, and they can be dramatically more parallel, possibly, than most computing well like you, 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 you know that's the other uh, another possibility because yeah. you can only grow even if you can only grow them small you might be able to wire them together or George said well how about if we stimulated and this is completely you know feasible in, in, in practice to think about what if we stimulated one of these so that it grew just a big hippocampus which is the yeah. bit of the brain that you know develops memory we can not they don't have to replicate a human brain you know in just in 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 every detail but in miniature we can manipulate them to emphasize particular aspects of so we could the get human rid of brain the amygdala or something absolutely like that and have yeah and calm rational people yeah 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 without yeah yeah. Uh, at the at the other end of the spectrum, uh, you, you talk a little bit about test tube babies, designer babies, all these, uh, um, well, since promises over many many decades that by now, you know, when you wanted a child, you'd sort of go into a supermarket and look at all the different uh, options on offer, which is one version of the kind of plasticity you're talking about. Now you're quite skeptical of that, but how how should an audience like this think about the degree to which um, there will be choice in shaping children using the new technologies of, of, of plasticity and regeneration? Well, I, the first thing to recognize is that we have that choice and we exercise that choice already in IVF because uh, in this country um, it's legal and possible to screen IVF embryos, to, which means to um, take out the, just a, one cell is removed from maybe the sort of eight cell stage of an embryo and uh, its, its genome is sequenced uh, to find out if it has a, a genetic disease. So this can be done for people who know they're carriers of uh, a r often rare um, but quite nasty genetic mm -hmm. diseases caused by a single gene. And if both of those mut mutants turn up in an embryo, then it's going to have that disease um, rather than just being a carrier. And so you can do this to avoid uh, you know, implanting embryos that will have those diseases. So this is already done, and the point is made that if you can, you know, if you can screen for that, you could screen in principle for anything. And in some countries, including the USA and Sweden, you can screen for sex, so you can choose, you know, a, a male or female embryo. Um, so you know, that's where we're starting from. Now, one of the th one of the things that limits that is that you, you know, in uh, in IVF, you you you're be lucky if you have half a dozen good embryo, good-looking embryos that you know you, you you could in principle implant. But what if you had a hundred? What if you had a thousand that you could screen to get a particular kind of genetic profile that you think is going to be good at music, say? Um, uh, well, you know, how are you going to get that? Well, one possibility is to use this technology of reprogramming cells not to make many brains, but to make gametes, to make the, the, the germ cells that make eggs and sperm. 
and again this has been done already in mice that um, it's possible to uh, make induced pluripotent stem cells that, um, that, that it's, it's hard to make them become eggs or sperm by themselves because that's actually a very specialized process of cell differentiation but if you get them a part of the way along that stage and then implant them into mouse ovaries or mouse testes mm -hmm. then you can get artificial if you like eggs and sperm from mm -hmm. from those cells that have been used to grow to to for, for you know mouse ivf to grow apparently healthy looking mice mm -hmm. pups mm -hmm. um if you did this for humans then you can make you could make thousands of eggs from a piece of your arm mm. you know without having to go through the horrible hormone treatments that uh, mm. are currently needed and so in principle it would be possible to mm. have a thousand embryos mm. from which to choose and so then it becomes you know really quite um, challenging how you manage a situation like that mm. so you know that's just one of the ways mm. uh, before we even start talking about say genome editing mm. which is also on the well has also happened mm. um for for ivf uh one of the ways in which you can you know see these technologies potentially developing and which we have to decide you know then what we think is is acceptable and what isn't and this is the era when you can buy a CRISPR kit on Amazon for I think it's a hundred dollars now. I don't know if you've got one at home, but it's that is it's so scary that that, that you can do. It. I mean, it's it, it it you know it will become like the the, the sort of stem cell snake oil um, that you, you know people uh, will be encouraged to, to do their you know do CRISPR at home to edit your CRISPR is a technique that is um, it's the, the sort of latest technique uh, the most accurate technique that we have um, to edit. Uh, genomes so it can just um, in principle target a particular gene or a bit of a gene snip that out and replace it with a, you know a, a rewritten bit of that gene so to take out a, a mute a dangerous mutant let's say um, it was used at the end of last year it was used by a scientist in China for IVF um, pretty much everyone working in this field is unanimous in thinking this should not be done uh, for reproductive purposes. But this guy went ahead and did it. Um, it it was, seems clear he broke rules in China uh, to, to, to do it, and he's now under investigation. He's been suspended. But he did it um, to edit a gene that he thought um, would confer protection against HIV in babies born that way and the babies have been born it's there are two girls and we no one knows yet what their future holds because we don't know the consequences of doing this in particular although CRISPR I say it's accurate but it's not 100% accurate you get some off-target um, editing as well and we have no idea you know what that will mean for these children so you know that too is already in the reproductive arena so let's open up for questions or comments to fire up your brains, however many you've got, for uh, anything which uh, uh, shocks you, excites you, or, or, in, or sort of surprises you in what you've heard from Philip. Who would like to start? Yes. What kind of timescales do you think are for actually safely picking out and being able to choose like different genomes? Like saying, is CRISPR, is it like what, 15, 20 years or something that actually really did work in that? It's it's yeah. actually shorter. Um, it's it was about 2012 that it came that it appeared. Um, and I feel like it's already just advanced like so much already. It has, yeah, yeah. Like, surely, like in the next like decade or something. Does anyone actually own one at home? Incidentally, a Amazon kit? No. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, time scales, I guess. Like, because obviously, I know it's dependent very stuff, but it, it, I mean, it depends, I suppose. You know, timescales for what? That we're, what we're going to be, to be able to like um, safely kind of like be able to choose like what actually where you had your child in. Right. Maybe this. <laughs> well, uh, I I I think the truth is that um, we we can do that to a large degree already. We uh, you know as I say with embryo selection we can do that. Um, making artificial gametes, artificial eggs and sperm for humans hasn't been done we've uh, got a little way along that process but there's no reason to think given that it has clearly worked in in mice um you know the the the, uh, the reproductive biology is not identical but it's close um there's no obvious reason to think that it couldn't be done eventually in humans um 
so, uh, you know, I don't think it'll be long before we are looking at the possibility, you know, that before we, we know that we can do that in principle. Um, the, the thing about CRISPR is, you know, that this, uh, this development in China really opens the floodgates because in a way it's a little bit like um, what happened with Louise Brown, the, the, the first IVF baby uh, in, in um, 1978, that um, uh, that was kind of, there were all sorts of worries raised about, you know, whether, it be, whether IVF would be safe and there were all sorts of forecasts about how it would lead to children with all kinds of um, abnormalities and deformities. Uh, but there was no real legislation about it, and um, uh, Robert Edwards and Patrick Steptoe and their collaborators kind of just went ahead and did it. Uh, and I mean, you know, w there were good reasons from from animal experiments to think it would be okay, but no one really knew. Um, but it was just done, and once that w it was clear that that was okay, then you know, or, or really, actually, that w is what started all of this. It's what started the whole area of embryology, experimental embryology, because IVF created human embryos that could be used for experimental purposes. Um, and in a way, you know, you could say that that's happened here, that we know in principle that you can use CRISPR and you can have live births. We don't know the, the, the risks of that. Um, but that isn't necessarily going to stop at least some people from pressing ahead. Um, and, you know, the worry is that in, in countries where this isn't regulated, that, that, you know, you will have people going there and saying, well, I want a you know, child with this gene and that gene. And there's, all, there's a lot of misinformation around. And these are not necessarily, well, I, I did, the CRISPR thing is another matter. But the, you know, um, the online uh, genomics companies, 23andMe and so on, there's a lot of misinformation that arises from that about what, the role of genes are in determining the way we come out. And I think there is now this very deterministic, wrongly deterministic view of genes that leads people to think, crikey, you know, if I, all I need to do is tinker with these genes and I'll be able to get a child that ha is more intelligent, which is the first thing people are going to go after. It's, it, it's not the case. It's absolutely not the case. And it probably never will be the case because the, the, the genetics of intelligence doesn't work that way. But I am afraid, I suspect we will see people starting to do that. And there are, you know, now these, some of these companies that offer to, uh, to, 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 to give you a sort of an intelligence, an IQ diagnosis from your genome, which, you know, perpetuates this idea that you can do it. Um, so I think it's, you know, there are, there are definitely worrying possibilities already. And I think, um, uh, you know, that's, it's, it's only going to get harder in the coming years. You went to visit Louise Brown, the first test tube baby, and she is fine. That's <laughs> <laughs> the good news. <laughs> She's very well indeed. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, so yeah. are mm. something like six million others <laughs> who've, yeah. who've been yeah. born that way. Hey, maybe you just say something. Uh, uh, Ask a question there. I want to then later perhaps come back to this question. What's what's the boundary line in your view of how much our anxieties of this are sort of a squeamishness, which is perhaps a bit irrational, and how much is a sort of rational ethical concern? But let, let's let's ask your question first. Yeah. If I was uh, interested to read that there's a, a version of this list that you call blood cell banking, and cause a little for percentage of bullet stem cells, mm -hmm. and I just wondered if you Yeah, I mean, it, it's absolutely true that there are stem, that when we talk about stem cells, um, there, there's not just one type of stem cell. In fact, many organs in our body have stem cell-like uh, cells in them that are involved in regeneration. That's how we're able, that's how we're able to heal at all, um, that have a limited capacity to regenerate certain tissues. And umbilical cord stem cells are somewhat like that. They're not quite like 
the embryonic stem cells in the early stage of a blastocyst, but they can do a lot. And that's why, um, you know, some people are now collecting those cells from the children when they're born and getting them frozen. And it's absolutely true that then you don't have this worry that if you're later in life creating induced pluripotent stem cells, um, uh, that, that they might not be quite, you know, uh, like genuine embryonic stem cells because you have the, 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 the real thing or something like the real thing already. So, yeah, you know, and, and I think that's um, that that to me seems fine. It seems, you know, uncontroversial. It's a, it, it's a, it's a, it, I don't think it should be an obligation, but I can understand why people might want to do that, because absolutely in, you know, 10, 20 years time when children born today are, 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 are adult, that I'm sure there will be technologies that will be able to make use of those cells in ways that will benefit them. Uh, I also think, you know, from what you say, that there's a tendency to, uh, and this will come on to your question, Jeff, to, um, to regard them as some kind of elixir of immortality, because this is, this is what we do. You know, I think we need to be realistic about what those cells will and won't be able to do. And they, as I say, they won't necessarily be able to regenerate your brain cells. <coughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 what, what interests me about this, I mean, there are worries about them. And there are absolutely genuinely ethic, genuine ethical questions and particularly questions about the safety of various procedures. But I think what interests me is that in particular in reproductive technologies, um, that whenever an advance is made, we see the same fears being raised. Um, and they were the same fears that, you know, the same fears that were raised with um, Louise Brown and the beginnings of IVF are the ones that were raised about the so-called, and it's a terrible name, three-parent babies, which is, is basically where um, it's a technique, an IVF technique that um, is used to combat mitochondrial diseases, mitochondria, little parts of cells that have their own genes separate from the main genome. And if some of those uh, have certain mutations, they can create really quite nasty diseases. And so this was a way of avoiding that, which, uh, which basically means that there is a third person, apart from the reproductive parents, who's, whose genes, there's just 30 genes or so, um, in those mitochondria. Um, so it's a terrible way to, to think about, to talk about, you know, what, what a parent is. But anyway, that's, um, but when that technology was being discussed, you have the, you know, the same, the same tropes of Brave New World and Frankenstein that always come up. And th there's a tendency amongst scientists to throw up their hands in horror and say, you know, why, why are we always sort of tarred with these, you know, this brush with these, these sort of fears that somehow it's going to lead to a master race or that it's going to lead to creatures, you know, people who have somehow ha have no emotions or are going to be you know pathological in some other way but i'm interested in what's really behind that what is it what the what why is it that these same fears keep coming around and they do with cloning as well we haven't talked about cloning but that's another um uh you know technique that's that's may lead somewhere um and I think we need to understand what those fears uh, and what, what, are really what, what about. What do you think the root of them is, then, of Frankenstein onwards? Well, I, I, I think, really, if we go back to the root, it's a, a, a discussion about an unease about the artificial compared to the natural. We have preconceptions about naturalness mm. and that naturalness means good. And actually, that's, that stem, that goes right back, as many things do, to Thomas Aquinas. It's a theological argument mm -hmm. that nature is what God made, and therefore nature is intrinsically good. And things that humans make are questionable. I mean, that actually goes even further back to Plato, that it, who was suspicious of art in the, in the general sense of things that are made. And I think we still have that suspicion today. Mm. Synthetic is a term often of mm. you know, abuse. Mm. Um, and, and artificial has that same connotation. And so I think when we talk about things like artificial sperm mm. and eggs yeah. um, or artificial uh, conception, mm. um, then 
and you know it it was interesting to me that this term test tube baby mm. appeared test tubes weren't involved at all but the <laughs> test tube was a sign yeah. of the chemical laboratory yeah. where artificial unnatural things mm. happen and I, so i think that at root it's it's a an unease um that is very very ancient about whether humans can really create things that are as good as god yeah. has made and yet, I mean, everything you describe in the book is about humans becoming godlike in some way. I know you, you wouldn't put it that way. But, uh. Well, lots of people do. You know, it's often, I mean, yeah. this term playing God is, is often um, bandied about, um, mm. which interestingly is not a term that theologians really recognize at all. It's not a theological concept. Um, it's one that was kind of invoked to, again, to um, express disapproval. Um, but uh, and again and again it you know often is is raised in in connection with with with, with frankenstein um but you know i think that that mm. whole notion mm. has to be interrogated rather than just kind of recycled you know that that term really needs to be um picked apart yeah. playing god <laughs> right yeah. um, you talk very positively about this technology um but i think in my mind has there been a sort of question of the extreme that this could lead to in terms of like provocative words such as eugenics or also the idea of sort of I mean natural selection and sort of the benefits that variance within the species sort of gives to us um, in terms of if you if you take artificial genetics I mean everyone will agree that sort of being able to edit out genetic diseases is a, is a good thing but you talk about sort of people being able to select for intelligence like I think sort of the concept of eugenics which has been around for quite a long time is in some way there could be parallels with eugenics. Yes. Um well I, I think eugenics is a word that has to be aired and talked about and confronted. Um and I, I think the answer to that is that most of the things that we might imagine people would want to try to select for and you know, like I say intelligence is is the obvious one. Um, complex human traits are ones that might not be amenable to any sort of selection that you know people have looked for decades mm. for intelligence genes there are no intelligence genes there are a few uh, genes that well there are many genes that seem to that clearly do play some role in intelligence intelligence is partly genetic i mean it, you know we may feel uncomfortable about that but it's very clear that that is true it's partly inheritable and there should be no you know there should be no surprise about that because just about everything about us is partly inherited um but it's partly not it's partly environmental it's partly the way the brain happens to wire up uh, as we as we develop that's the often overlooked bit of it that there's a lot of randomness that happens during development um, so you know that bit we won't be able to control by gene editing and even if we knew what these hundred or maybe thousand or maybe a few thousand genes that are involved in intelligence are even if we knew that there were some each of which has a negligible effect in itself what can you do about that in terms of certainly in terms of gene editing you can't you can't because those thousand genes this is why they're not genes for intelligence they're genes that are doing all kinds of things if we, we have no idea what you know trying to tinker with some of them to improve intelligence will do to other aspects of the organism and but they'll do something for sure um, so you know that's why I think traits like intelligence won't be amenable to this sort of manipulation or selection. Um, on the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, it will happen because of the way things go, because of what we are, because there are these companies that, that you know, that if, I mean, imagine if you are faced with your, your you know, you're doing IVF, there are various um, embryos and they've been sequenced and you said, well, this one has a, a genetic profile that, uh, would t that sort of would, would would suggest it will be in the top 10% in SATS tests and this one has a genetic profile that would be in the bottom 10% which are you going to choose uh, you know it's 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 going to be very hard even though that isn't predictive at all of individual embryos because when you say 
in the top 10%. It's a big bell curve that overlaps massively with a big bell curve for the bottom 10%. It could be anywhere in those, and it could be not just because of the genetics, but because of these other things that happen during development and environment and so on. So you're never going to be able to predict, you know, what intelligence this embryo is going to have. But you know, you can imagine faced with that, and people will be, I think, increasingly faced with with uh, choices like that. <laughs> what would you do? So I think this is why we have to think very carefully about how we control, you know, that that kind of possibility. Uh, uh, final question: We're al we're almost out of time. Um, could you say a little bit about what you think is happening and will happen to our sense of self and identity? Obviously, if you have a second brain, that sort of slightly challenges your sense of self. If any part of you can be made from any party, that also transforms how we think about ourselves as individuals. Do you, do you think we're moving into a, a, a period when we will have, in some ways, a much more fluid conception of the self and its boundaries and its possibilities? And is that good or bad? Um, I, I think we, I, well, I think it, 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 we certainly should do. Um, we should do already, actually, but these um, developments just re-emphasize mm -hmm. that because, you know, wh th they for one thing, they, they force us to confront our cellular nature, the fact that we are actually communities of cells. Mm -hmm. and, um, and somehow we, you know, arrive at mm -hmm. a sense of self and individuality mm -hmm. from that. But it's not, there's, there's no obvious mapping of one onto mm. the other the fact that there was a bit of me and i think of it as a bit of me how else do i think of it growing in a an incubator five mm. miles across town and there's still a bit of me frozen um mm. there you know the, some of my induced pluripotent stem cells are still mm. frozen there and they could be used to grow who knows in mm. you know years time they could mm. in principle be used mm. to grow another being mm. um i'm sure they won't be but um mm. i'm not entirely sure but i'm sure i'm, I'm yeah. confident <laughs> yeah. um but, uh, but, but I think that really that just emphasizes the fact that we have never had a clear cut. I mean, this is one thing, again, that surprised me in, once I started to delve into this. There is no biological definition of the individual organism, which is kind of crazy because we all know, you know what that means. We all have a sense that not only are we individuals, but there are individual you know, insects and, and so on. But there is no biological way to say what that means. It's certainly not the genome because we are patchworks many of us of of and some people are you know real patchworks uh, of of uh, of different genomes mm. um uh there's no you know th this shows that there's no clear boundary to the body mm. either um so i think this just kind of returns us to a question that already existed of how on earth we think about the self as a, I, I suspect it's not really a biological. It's an it's, it's, well, uh, well, I don't think it's necessarily an illusion because it's something that we, you know, experience is no more an illusion than consciousness is. It's there, we experience it. But I think that it's not a scientific term in the same way as life, you know, we can't define what it means. I don't think we can define scientifically what the self means. And so we have to think, we have to find some other way of thinking about it. And I think for me, it feels like it's something it's not something that you can write down as pre-existing. Uh, it's something that emerges through a lived life. Yeah, um, yeah it's, a, it's a dynamic thing. And it's, you know, it, yeah. of course it's dynamic. We have this turnover in ourselves as well. Our physical being is always yeah. turning over. Um, so I, th I think it, it has to be related to the lived life. Yeah. And increasingly it is something we can hack as well as you have done. Again, not, not a word you use, but uh, you are essentially hack hacking your own self. I, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's talked about in that context. I'm, again, I'm not even sure what that means. I mean, we, because, you know, we talk about, um, there, there is talk about, and this, is, this is, gets us into transhumanism and the, the notion that somehow we're going to uh, alter our bodies, you know, in all sorts of ways and link them up to, to, to technologies. And, um, but, but I, I still think that so long as we have uh, a single conscious experience, and the amazing thing is that we do actually, it's a real mystery how we do, how the brain creates that from these many different inputs. But as long as we do, you know, that feels to me to be where the self has to reside, not in, not in uh, you know, the physical in the biology, in some yeah, way. Yeah. And partly perhaps for that reason, 
you don't recommend people to freeze their brains particularly no um that. i'm afraid <laughs> just in case any of you not. were thinking about that wait but maybe that, but that's <laughs> maybe a topic, topic for another <laughs> another another time um hi highly risky uh, as with many other things in your freezer may not come out quite uh, quite the same as when you put them in um on that slightly silly note um uh we're out of time. Will you join me in thanking Philip? There are copies of the book to uh, buy there. I would strongly recommend it. I think in some ways, I think it slightly undersells itself with its title because it, it is a, I mean, it's a primer on so many issues of the moment about biology, about neuroscience and so on, as well as your own story of growing a brain. So strongly recommended and you will be signing copies. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well. And yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you can discuss, yeah, freezing your brain over a drink. And if you want, you're also welcome to go outside, even though it is a bit freezing out there, I think, now. Uh, join me in thanking Philip. Thank you.